0: from 6 On 2FM Thanks to the two Joggies It's Tuesday the 18th of October And this is Game On Coming up today Stephen Kelly and Mark Langdon On another busy week Of Premier League action
1: The games are so they're, they're relentless, and the challenges are huge in that regard. So it's about the teams, about the group, it's about the togetherness of the of the squad. And um, you know, if you're prepared to suffer, you're prepared to deal with the discomfort in the games, then you give yourself a chance to keep a clean sheet, and that obviously gives you a chance to win with the, certainly with the quality that we have. In rugby, we've
0: exited England international town May on the Wasps crisis. In cricket, we hear from Ireland ahead of a must-winning game at the T20 World Cup. And in Gaelic Games, we'll talk you through the history of the GAA in 100.
2: Hours. I said, this is what I want you to have. And I got the, 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 the medal from my good friend Eamon Michael, And I went round every player's face. And it's amazing when you know when you're looking at somebody A to A, that you have that full concentration. Say, so this is what I want everyone to use to have. So there wasn't a word in the grass. So I said, there's only one, one thing we can do. We've got to do it. Kieran said a few words, went out. and uh, You won. Well done. Yeah. Oh, what a great story. Thanks, Joe. That's a good jar.
0: Now if you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at GameOn2FM. GameOn on 2FM. Game
3: on on 2FM. Well,
0: welcome along. I'm delighted to say that former footballer Stephen Kelly is with me live in studio, as is Siobhan Doyle, who, men- who wrote that book that I just mentioned, the history of the GAA in 100 Objects. We'll be talking to Siobhan about that a little bit later on, but if you have any suggestions for objects you'd have liked to have been included, do send them in to us on 51552 or anything maybe that you have in your wardrobe that you're wondering about. Um, it's historic worth. Uh, do let us know. Uh, Siobhan, how are you? Thanks for coming in.
3: Great, thanks Marie. Uh, The book is great. What does it feel like to be an author holding your book in your hands? Uh, That's great. (laughs) After it's been an, an idea in my head for so long and a document in my laptop it's great to hold it in my hands and see it on the bookshelves finally. And Stephen,
0: it is great to have you in studio. We don't get you too often as you don't live in Ireland mm. that much. Um, but good to have you, are things?
4: Yeah, very good. Thanks for having me again, as always. Um, yeah, being good and watching football every weekend and enjoying it. And yeah, back now for a couple of weeks with the kids off half term, which is a strange time considering it's not a Halloween yeah. in, in comparison to Ireland. But yeah, two weeks off.
0: I think, uh, yeah, ours doesn't, our midterm or their midterm doesn't come along until... Um, Until next week, I think. So, look at you with the two weeks. Uh, We're going to get into the football in a little bit, but I do want to put something to you, Stephen. So there's been uh, quite a lot of debate and discussion about Rotherham managers, Matt Taylor, his thoughts on the League of Ireland. So he's talking about Georgie Kelly, who scored the winner on Saturday for Rotherham and gave a brilliant interview. Um, He said that Georgie is still incredibly raw. He's come from Ireland with no disrespect to Irish football. It is the equivalent of non-league level in the English Hermit uh, suddenly he's learning he's trading the championship that's difficult for him to do I want people to be patient with him mm. what are your thoughts on that
4: yeah it's it's insulting to the league of Ireland in, in the sense that um, you know the league of Ireland would expect to be at some sort of league level I would have thought go, when you compare comparatively but from his point of view he has probably no concept of the League of Ireland when it comes to would he watch a week in week out does he you know the players um, and all you, you can do is judge off the players that have come across over the last few years and how well they've done how well they've fared have they been able to settle in at different levels and you know it, it's varied hasn't it it's not just like I was speaking off air about um, Richie Taylor came across mm-hmm. and the high expectations on him to come across he was the standout but former League of Ireland I remember he came and trained with the senior national team a couple of times while he was still playing League of Ireland and he went across and it just didn't happen for him and it's it's probably not down to ability, it could have just been down to new environment, new situations. So I think it's very hard to compare the leagues. You know, we off people always talk about Celtic and Rangers. Where they'd fare if they came into the Premier League, would they be a thing and they're talking about joints the clubs? But yeah, you know, it's unfair for him to say that if he doesn't know the league, and I think everybody over here will be disgruntled by it. But I think the league holds itself and better. And the way they're competing in Europe at the moment now, um, and regularly showing you know, good form and playing against teams that have much huge astronomical budgets in comparison mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's very unfair
0: So you do know the league and yes. you know the leagues in England as well and everybody loves to try and compare it to some sort of division where would you put it? Oh, you put me in the spot here Marie. I know uh, <laughs> uh, I, That's why they pay me the big yeah, bucks Stephen it's, you know? <laughs> um, it's a
4: hard it, it is really hard because I think if as a league, as a whole, it'd be it'd be hard to put into one league. If you talk about individual teams, you'd say mm. they could probably go and perform. You look at you look at Rovers, and you think, right, financially, the players they have, they've got players on the fringes of the senior international team. You you would think it, it's more inclined to be a League One championship. So, um, I don't think I could put in the championship at the moment, and that's just because the financial gain in the champion, championship and the teams that have just come to Premier League are huge. Like the the standard in that league is, I had I had one or two seasons in as a player and it was relentless and the, the level that they were playing at was so high so I think I'd find it very hard to say that the League of Ireland could go in and compete in the Championship level I think that might be a push too far so you'd be saying League 1 but uh, not to say that individual players couldn't go and compete at a higher level I'm not saying that I'm saying as a league as a whole you would say that would probably find its, it's place around there.
0: Okay, well, look Is that in- harsh? <laughs> uh, no look it's, it's interesting because I think you make a good point about the different individual players and also just the fact that some of them have gone over there and, and it hasn't worked out and yet some of our top players are the players that maybe years ago we would have thought would have been heading over to play in the Premier League. That's not happening anymore no, and they are playing the championship.
4: I think as well. I mean looking at um I've done for a lot of twenty ones games mm-hmm. and I would say a lot of standout performers in the twenty ones games of players that are playing League of Ireland, like you look at the goalkeeper yeah. Maher, Dawson DeVoy, who's gone now, and um, Kieran Tierney, uh a not Kieran Tierney, um Ross Tierney, sorry. Yeah. Um, um and you look at those players, um, Kerrigan. All these players have done really well in the 21s and that's a level that people would expect to be championship level or above. And So it's not based on an individual level of a player. It's based as a league as a whole and where they actually could compete on a regular basis week in, week out with the amount of games and the threshold. And I just think the championship would probably be one step too far for a lot of those teams, Rovers, possibly the financial support they would have and the way they're competing. But Mm -hmm. it's still a lot to ask.
0: Yeah, and it's so difficult to compare look i think once you, you the teams are in a league and it's competitive and you're getting title races and good matches yeah. every week like you have to be happy with that and, and see yeah. what happens
4: it's about the growth of the league in this country and it's about you know the resources and the finances finding their way into mm-hmm. this grassroots has been changed you know the FAI, are, it, it the things are happening here to make forward football go in the right direction when it comes to coaching levels and, everything. and you know for for such a long time you know it was the ddsl was was the main Kind of for you get in the DSL, then you get across to England. That sixteen yeah. seven. That was my that was my experience ever. So I left at sixteen, and I, I I never came back. And you know, for a lot of lads of my age, when they came back, it was they came back to League Ireland, and for a while it was quite booming. And then it had its peaks and troughs. And at the moment now, it seems to be in a steady position. and um, but I, I just think yeah, it's very hard to say as a team, as a league, as individual players, I think the players that could go and do it, but as as a league it's 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 difficult. And you'd yeah.
0: have to think as well that it's going to get better because even today now the under fifteens and under seventeen Republic of Ireland squads were named today and yesterday and like I'll always scan through them i 'cause I'm I'm curious about the the players coming through and um you know, six from Pats, six from Rovers and that was in the fifteens and it was something similar in the seventeens as well. So like the players are gonna be staying at home for longer and you're going to have them probably emerging into the league as well.
4: Well, there's new legislations all that come in with the European Union and breaks and stuff. So players are, and I think what it is is there's a direct line of sight now for players. Whereas before, like I said, it was DDSL and we played mm-hmm. for the likes of Home Farm or Belvo, and then you get your move across to the UK. And whereas now you're 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 in the academy system in that team and there's a direct line of sight to the first team and play League of Ireland, and that's that's the main goal for these players. And whereas before it was always the aim was to get to get get to the UK. Whereas now you can see a direct pathway to to top level football and performing, but I still think if you speak to any player, and there's probably a lot out there that don't, but I think any player, if when they have if they have a mental and they have goals in their mind, would be to perform at the league one as best they could, and then if they get a chance to go and play in a foreign league, that 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 yeah. would be the aim because it's a fully professional league, and then you're opening yourself up to a, to a bigger wider world of what can happen league um, when it comes to international levels and and stuff like that and f- the financial rewards that go with it which is you know if you want to have a football career a, a, a football if you want to play football as your career financially it has to be rewarding as well and, and the rewards are there in in the likes of league 1 championship you know you can you can have a very good mm-hmm. career at
0: that and you can always come back
4: you can always come <laughs> back exactly
0: um, well, I might get into that again in a little bit because I'm curious to, as to when footballers retire, why they don't drop down the leagues and you know play till they're 45 or mm. older. But uh, you yeah. have to think about that, and I'll come back to it right. because we're going to turn our attention <laughs> to rugby now because it was uh, confirmed today that Wasps made 167 players and staff redundant after becoming the Premiership's second club to go into administration inside 21 days. The Coventry-based club were suspended by the Premiership last week and it has now been confirmed that they have suffered the same fate as their Midland, Midlands rivals, Worcester, and they will now be relegated. I am joined on the line now by Tom May, former England rugby player. Tom, it seems that it's the news that nobody wanted to hear, but it has been confirmed. How big a blow is this to the game of rugby in England? Uh,
1: you know, good evening. Thanks for having me. It's It's a big blow for... For everyone involved in the game here in England, I think it's it's been you know, a tough three weeks. I think it's been coming for a while and we've known it's been coming. And and if rumors are to be believed there's there's one or two more that are that are creaking as well. So it's it's a difficult time and clearly yesterday was it was a very dark day for, for rugby and, and rugby from from a WASP perspective where you know more than I think it was 160 people lost their jobs yesterday so um, it's a tough time and something needs to be done um, quickly to, to try and sort this out.
0: When you think of a, a club like WASPs they're so big and they've been around for so long and there's so much tradition and success there you would think that they're invincible that something like this would never happen to a club like that
1: no I know it's 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 you know you can imagine i th- i think clubs like that that have big global brands you would you would just assume that it would never happen to them um but I think when you look back to through some of the history of what happened here that you know there was a loan um that that was raised against um a bond that was raised which was basically funded some time ago um and now that has that is due back. It, it was done at the same time that they moved to Coventry, so they mm. moved away from their sort of historical home. Um, and arguably that move to Coventry hasn't worked. Um, so if you combine that with some of, the, some of the problems financially that they've had in the past, moving into the Rico Stadium is, was a big, big gamble now, I think it mm. looks like, uh, one that hasn't paid off.
0: And look at when something like this happens the microscope is on everything in the club. What do you think is the main reason for them to be in this situation?
4: Well,
1: I don't think the whole thing could be blamed on individual decisions. I don't think for example the the bond helped, mm. it, but that, you know, hindsight's a very useful thing, but COVID has put an incredible amount of pressure on on these clubs, you know, so many clubs um, played in empty stadiums for so long uh, they had a huge amount of government government funding which has put them under pressure um, financially since all of that has started to come you know be be due back in um and, and i think you know in rugby is is at a point as so many other businesses are in this in this current economic climate where where they have to try and stabilize themselves um it's potentially an opportunity for um club owners um shareholders, and the like to say, do you know what enoughs enough i've I've had enough of um sport and i need to I need to um move out of this if you can't invest anymore then mm-hmm. then then perhaps now is the time for those those people involved to to step away.
0: The model here in Ireland with the central contracts does seem to work well. Would you can you imagine a landscape where a rugby in England would operate in a similar kind of way?
1: It has worked well. Um, the one thing I would say, though, there is that, is that actually, you know, the regional game within Ireland with Leinster, Munster, Ulster, and, and Connaught is, is very different to the one where you have um, arguably 10 financially viable mm-hmm. um, um, clubs in themselves. Um, I think central contracts has has a strong argument, and, and certainly to the you know for the international game that that's perfect. But ultimately, this is about professional rugby at a at club level, and, and even if um, central contracts are are awarded to players, those clubs still need to have the funding to to fill out the rest of their squads. So, um, yes. Central contracts would go some way to alleviating the pressure, but I don't think it's it's the answer to everything.
0: What is the answer to everything then, Tom? Because it does feel <laughs> like it's close enough to getting to a stage where you could just rip things up and start again.
1: Well, I think some, Yeah, now is the time when when clubs can sort of wipe the slate clean. I guess try and look for new investment if that is what's needed. Um, and and try to kick on. Um, If I had the answer, (laughs) I'd be a very rich man, probably. Um, But I I think... um, I think the the question is about these clubs being in a position where actually they're they're able to stabilise themselves. Now, that, that could be a club at the top or it could be a club at the bottom of the league. Now, all of them have financial issues, um, those that are shouting the loudest about being financially stable has a has a sort of I don't know I'm not sure that comes across very well through the through the media and social media channels when they're doing it. Um, and and you, but you also have to create an environment where those top clubs can can kick on. Um, but also you have to fulfil or create an, an environment where those those smaller clubs can try and live up to their aspirations, which, you know, and that's very difficult because some clubs are miles off their salary cap and some Mm -hmm. clubs are right up to the limit. Um, And and that's the difficult uh, scenario that many of these players are faced with right now is that actually they're going to find it very difficult to find new clubs because because many of them are up to, up to their limit on the salary cap they
0: can't go over it. OK, well, you mentioned uh, the players there. Let's hear from one of them, Alfie Barbary, who is the Wasps number eight.
1: Starting to sink in more. Yesterday was a very, very strange and probably the hardest days of Hallandans sport. No one could quite really believe it. I can't say we didn't really see it coming, but we won the European Champions Cup, Premierships. We're not a small club and it's an unbelievable thing to have happened and yeah, we'll just gut it.
0: When Alfie lines it out there, just the fact, the levels that they were competing at, like you don't blame him for not believing that they were going to get to this stage.
1: No, and I think, I think it's difficult when you're in that scenario and you're, you're playing for a club of that size um, to believe it, mm-hmm. that anything's ever going to happen, Some, something will happen and it will work out all right. Um, it, it's a scenario that these players have not been exposed to in any other form Um, so you know they have to keep believing you know in themselves right now is the most important thing if they're to go on you know and and find other contracts but also you know they had to keep believing at the time Um, but you know for for a club to find itself in in the financial mess that that Wasps uh, found themselves in I think is is it is, you know it's it's mismanagement it's it's um it's just an all-round mess um and and I'm not quite sure where this is going to stop right now which is the frightening thing
0: yeah and like as you said at the start there are plenty of rumors swirling around as well that there might be other clubs that will follow um Bill Sweeney the RFU <laughs> Chief Executive has said obviously that things English rugby is broken, and that clubs have been living beyond their means for quite some time. So he favours establishing a structure similar to the one that operates in France, so that the game's financial health is policed by a body independent of French rugby. But getting there, I'd imagine, would be be quite difficult, Tom, just given how independent all the clubs are right now.
1: Yeah, the clubs have got a lot of they've got a lot of pull in their own right. so, you know they i think the the argument that bill Sweeney is coming back with is great, but getting to that point is is hard um I think French rugby is very different to to any other you know having experienced that myself it's 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 far more like football is in in here in the u k than than it is rugby in the u k um you know you have you have stadiums that are owned by um councils effectively uh, and and these clubs are you know the number one sport in town um the pride of the the pride of the town rides on that club and you know TV money and um, the fan bases mean that those clubs are incredibly wealthy in some cases but if you compare what we have here in the UK to, to that in France you know if you put which is the the second tier of French rugby, which is also professional against the championship, which is the second tier in in English rugby. For me, you would see a 50 point win in favour of those French teams every week. And that's how advanced their, their professional game is there. That's how far ahead they are in terms of strength and depth, um, and financial clout, um, now you could say that that's coming home, and, and we see that on the international level now, where France are one of the strong favourites to win next year's World mm-hmm. Cup. But it's uh, the top 14 and the Pro d de are, are miles ahead for me in terms of where they're financially set up to, to other European countries.
0: Okay, Tom May, thank you so much for joining us. Interesting times ahead for sure. And we will be watching on with a lot of interest from here as well. We will talk to you again soon. It's time for a very quick break, but do stay with us because we have plenty of football to come. Game on on 2FM. Welcome back to Game On with me, Marie Crow. It is 20 minutes past six and we are turning our attention to football. But we will in a second. We were just talking about rugby there with Tom May and the fact that um, it's been a disaster for Wasps and they've had to make over 160 of the players and staff redundant today. Stephen, you're quite familiar with the Wasps and um, I wouldn't say you trained with them but no. you trained very close to them. No,
4: I don't think I would have had a football career to trained with. <laughs> so I don't think. Um, no, yeah, we used to, uh, I was on loan at QPR from Spurs when I was a kid and we used to ground share with the Wasps at the training ground so you literally train on the pitch beside them it was a only tiny place um, and you'd be in the gym with them and I remember just, like I said, being this 18-year-old kid and going in there and Lawrence Lallaglio and Josh Lucy and these guys and just Monsters of men and being like, uh, <laughs> couldn't believe what they were doing and the weights. I'd say like, you were slim, were you? Oh, the skinny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, I was at, I was at the bulking up stage of my career, <laughs> and uh, I'm looking at them going, and they give you, like, you'd have a bit of banter with them, stuff and all, and they'd be training beside you, and they'd be like cheering you on, and then you just see what they do and the tackles they go into, and we're going, and the guys are rolling on the floor going, I don't think I ever ever rolled around after watching them train. I used to just be afraid because I'm thinking I can't, I can't possibly be crying because of a tackle when these guys are hitting each other the way they do, and yeah, it's just a shame to. See see them in this situation because mm-hmm. it's such an like, kind iconic of club in London it really is um, and the players that have come through there, are, like World Cup winners um, for England and stuff so it's a strange situation but also leads into Coventry which I know quite closely where they were sharing the ground with um, St Andrews at mm-hmm. Birmingham for two seasons and now they're back in there and I think they have a 10 year lease on the place so it's going to be interesting to see how that works out as well
0: So there's a, an article in The Athletic today about the the way footballers spend their time and, and all they do during training so did you train more than rugby players or did they train more than you?
4: No we train more than them Really? Yeah they, they, I think they would have been very limited to cause contact and hitting. Yeah. And um, you know, it's a much bigger impact on your body than what we would have had. So when it comes to actual, the amount of running we would have done and physical expansion in the game in training, I reckon herbs was probably higher. But there is just the actual impact on your body is so high that that would have been they had, would have had to really limit it to what to do on The contact was, but for us, we would we would have been definitely doing more running and training. More we've spend more you, like sessions where you'd be doing ten k and stuff.
0: I don't know about you Siobhan uh, Siobhan Doyle is with us as well um, I just had this perception that footballers train for about two hours a day and then they go home and play the PlayStation <laughs> yeah exactly they take candy for the rest of
4: the
3: day that's what Reason that you debunked that <laughs> yeah now. yeah
4: yeah no it's, it's- I suppose you do. You you can only train for a certain amount of time. Your body only allows you yeah. to do it because you're. It's um. You're you're trying to peak every game. You're not trying to peak in training. You're trying to peak at a game. So you know training facilitates that, and you and you train the way you play for most players. Um, and you have some really high intensity sessions. But if you're in Europe, you're playing the Europa League games. like guy would have done. You're going from playing on a, on a Saturday or Sunday to recovery and then back into training again and then flying away to somewhere foreign to play on a Thursday, then back on the plane again. So, you know, training becomes, it's a managing of your body mm-hmm. and managing just so that every weekend you can peak, every Tuesday you can peak, every Thursday you can peak and that's what it becomes about. Um,
0: so, you know those players then that are praised for like always being the first into the training ground, mm-hmm. always being the one like left at the end doing extra work yeah. like are they a myth no not
4: really I, you'll always have like, the play, those, like those players they're always first one in that will be you know in the gym beforehand where, you know it, they might not be doing something extremely strenuous mm-hmm. but something that's that's helping them develop their whether it's a technical ability their core strength something to get on the pitch and then afterwards it's just those little things where guys are spending extra minutes taking free kicks and you know sometimes the coaches do have to say listen that's enough you have to come in you're finished there we we don't want you getting a muscle strain and stuff like that so it's it's all about management and at the top level the players are assets to clubs and the last thing they want is for their biggest asset to be down and not being able to perform on a pitch so it's about managing what they want to do and what you think is best for them physically
0: So who was the one that you encountered that trained the most?
4: Um, train the most but hard train Duffer is a really hard trainer really yeah Duff, as in like just gives it everything and I'd I like to say myself as a hard trainer but i, I would have some else Someone say that for me instead I mean, of <laughs> praise myself but yeah Duffer's a hard trainer like always always um, on the pitch, like full of in, high-intense run, runners, runs and stuff like that. So he was just always someone that, that gave everything. And he, he trained the way he played. I think that's yeah. Well, he always co-
0: looked like on his yeah. face that he was given everything.
4: Yeah, that that he was he was very much of that. that like, and you can kind of tell with the way he coaches now. He seems to yeah. want that from his players too. Like he, he did it with I think what fourteen-year-olds. Yeah, he puts
0: so. huge demands. I think it yeah. was the Shamrock Rovers under fourteen to fifteen, he had them up really early in the morning before school, and it seems to be the case as well with um, Shells that he was wanted the stuff yeah. done early High
4: demand high, yeah. high, you know, high output but like you reap the rewards you really do the more you put in the more you mm-hmm. get out of it um, and I think yeah. But he, he would have been someone that was, was a very high intense trainer
0: Yeah and look at the career that he had we spoke mm. about it yesterday with Alan Colley as well Right well Mark Langdon of the Racing Post joins us now on the line and we are going to talk even more of football Mark let's start with uh, Diogo Jota who is going to miss the World Cup after being ruled out with a calf injury that he sustained on uh, in that game on Sunday huge blow for him for Liverpool and for Portugal
2: as well. Yeah, it, it is, um, you know, it's such a shame, and it didn't really look like much um, sort of first time. And, and it was obviously only when the stretcher came on, and you could see in his face that um, all was not well um, there. And uh, absolutely right, the, uh, you know, first of all, big blow, um, you know, for, for Liverpool with, with Diaz also being um, out at the moment. Um, but for a player to miss. Um, the World Cup, and Portugal have got other forwards, and I'm sure that you know that, that the depth in that forward line will mean that, that they'll still be able to field a, a very strong side. But for the player himself mm-hmm. to miss out on a World Cup, and I think the heartbreaking thing for a lot of players actually is that you know there will be a lot of them that miss this World Cup because of injuries. Um, you know, Richarlison was in tears uh, on was it Saturday night um, when he got injured against Everton. He felt that it was going to be quite a serious one sounds like it's only a couple of weeks, but in a couple of weeks, that kind of really minor calf problem that rules you out for two weeks might keep you out of the World Cup um, because I think, you know, teams are not going to want to take chances on sort of injured players that are, that are out for two or three weeks. Normally, you get those injuries at the end of a season. There's that space, isn't there, between you know the end of the domestic campaign and the World Cup. So, um, Jota's... You know, he, he's probably the first of the, the real big names, but he's not going to be the last that, that suffers one of these injuries that, you know, just rules out a World Cup. And I think it will be interesting to see whether, particularly for those that are maybe playing for smaller nations, whether they might start taking it a little bit easy. There might be the odd um, injury, shall we say, in that last week or two weeks of, of, the, uh, of the kind of Premier League and Championship season. And, I mean, who could really blame a player, you know, when we've got a World Cup on the line? I, you know, Jota's, I think, this is just going to be repeated um, in the next few weeks. And, you know, the World Cup is going to be a survival of the fittest, um, no doubt about that.
0: Stephen, will players start wrapping themselves up in cotton
4: wool? I was on um, taking extra yellow cards, get suspensions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that happens. Um, but no, I think World Cups don't come around that often as a player. And, and it's one of those things that you kind of feel you could have one opportunity to go to and it might never happen mm-hmm. again. So it, it's something that you never want to miss. But I don't think you say you wrap yourself in cotton wool, the conversations probably had in the change room, it's talked about. it as soon as you cross the white line, that changes. Mm. It, it, you, you don't hold back. I don't know anybody that would, or maybe there's one or two, but I'm saying for the most part, when you apply at the highest level, as soon as you cross the line, you have to track that person, you have to run with that person, you're not going to stop, you're not going to walk. It goes out the window. All the conversations are done off the pitch and a little bit of banter about it, but realistically, it doesn't happen
0: yeah well we'll be watching very closely now over the next few weeks to see who's given 100% or they'll be able to check the, the GPS anyway yeah. the stats and everything um, so Mark let's stick with Liverpool for a minute because the manager Jürgen Klopp has now been charged with improper behaviour by the FA following his sending off in Sunday's uh, victory over Manchester City so we saw him got that red card by from um, Anthony Taylor at the end of the game because he was getting so um, aggressive and angry and you know at the time when I saw it and it's a bit like Stephen was saying. You're kind of watching it, and you're caught up in, and you think, "Oh, it's just Klopp getting mad." But then you think a little bit more about it and start having conversations about what's going on with referees as well. And um, you know, it, it does feel like it's a little bit deeper, and, and it's something that we shouldn't really be seeing on, on the big stage from our from the big professionals.
2: No, absolutely not. No, um, you know, I, I mean, Klopp will 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 realise himself. I think that that went. Too far. It was obviously a very emotional, um, highly charged atmosphere and game. And uh, you know there was a decision sort of ten seconds before that that uh, it was absolutely incredible. That it wasn't given a, as a Liverpool free kick for the, the sort of pull down on on Salah. But even allowing for all of that. You know, Jurgen Klopp can't react like that, and there have been a number of issues, um, in Britain anyway, at least, um, you know, I'm not sure if it's the same, um, in Ireland, but we've had a lot of issues over here with, um, you know, grassroots referees being physically assaulted, um, some have, have gone on strike, there wasn't a nationwide strike, there was talk of that, it didn't get that far. And, you know, of course, a, a player playing sort of Saturday or Sunday football shouldn't react that way just because, um, you know, Jürgen Klopp has done, you need to sort of look after yourself and, and be responsible for your own actions. But um, there's no doubt um, that, that, I, that I think that it does kind of just um, allow people to feel like they're, they're, they're able to, whether it's verbally or physically, just abuse officials. And I think even in the media, you need to be very careful um, about how far we take the criticism of referees. Of course, they need to be held accountable if they make um, big mistakes. But, you know, some of the stuff that goes on, um, you know, on, on a weekly basis now over, you know, where a referee lives and, you know, people are getting the tape measure out to see how far they are f- from grounds. I just think that that, you know, just goes um, way too far. And, you know, without referees and, and um, officials, you, you haven't got a game. So, um, and you're not going to help them get any better because... Um, I mean, who would want to be a referee at this moment when you risk being attacked on the pitch for you know giving a red card or something like that? So you're not going to get any of the referees progressing through the ranks because there won't be enough of them and I'm sure that um, you know, Jürgen Klopp can get quite feisty on the touchline. I've never seen him go that far before. and I'm, I'm pretty sure he'll know that he, he's overstepped the mark there and, and, and fully deserved the red card um, for, for his actions.
0: Well, he was asked about it in a press conference today. Let's hear from him. There was another
1: game this season where I was, but which I watched where it was similar and ended up in red cards for the, for the, for the coach as well. It was Tottenham. Chelsea taught them. was it Chelsea, yeah, we thought as well, watch the game and we thought in front of the television, oh my God, um, what's going on here, it was super intense, um, and no excuse, That's not. An, I don't use that as an excuse for me, it's just, that's what, what was the game, and... Um, How I said, I thought the performance was outstanding individually as a unit as well. It was absolutely great. And after the game, then um, all the talks go about what I said and um, what I did and what um, people make of it. don't think that should be the case, but obviously I cannot change
0: that. Stephen, you're a former Premier League footballer. There's a picture gone viral of um, 10 Manchester United players surrounding a referee disputing a decision. And if you look at it in the context of everything that's going on that Mark outlined there, the issues with referees being abused in the UK and here as well, we've had a huge amount of it, a huge amount of controversy, not just in uh, soccer, but other sports as well. You have to think that players need to be more responsible mm. because there is a lot of young people sitting down, watching them, thinking that's normal.
4: Well, that's the, uh, you do and you normalise that action and you make people feel that it's acceptable and it's not. And, um, I would have been guilty of myself at times, probably in games where, you know, ref's given a decision and you say something back to them on, on a way out of anger and you you think back to yourself and you can get caught up in the moment and you can get quite, like I said, the intensity is flung through and, you know, nothing more so when if you're in a stadium, like I said, in Klopp's there and there's probably 30,000 Liverpool fans, Forty Liverpool screaming at him that that was a mistake by the referee and it gets up but it it doesn't really excuse i think you have to be in control of your own actions Um, and i said to see it filtering down like so we're talking about there i I live in the uk and I coach (laughs) underage football with kids and on a regular basis i'm experiencing i'm just Mm -hmm. going this is shocking and they said if if it if in any way it can be affected because of the actions of the senior players if they can tone down what they're doing and then that will filter down it's a huge thing that they need to be aware of and but like I said there was the so League they, they called off those games mm-hmm. and there was like I think 380 I think um, charges were filed against players of grassroots football last year about assaulting referees and fighting with referees which is just an astronomical number that shouldn't be there and you know if it starts from the top and we, always, we always go back to rugby we always go back to respect rugby shows mm-hmm. and the difference and you know when you see the two sports you've got to realise that that's the way you need to conduct yourself but football just has this passion that boils over and wrongly so in a lot of times
0: yeah and it's acceptable that's the problem with it and it's the same here as well we've been talking about it on and off on this show for the last few weeks um, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better uh, Mark so Karim Benzema won the Ballon d'Or and so deservedly so I saw a tweet today that the three things he wanted in his life were to buy a house for his mother to play for Real Madrid and to win the Ballon d'Or and he did it all
2: <laughs> he has yeah um, I, yeah, f- fully deserved uh, you know he almost a goal a game um, in La Liga and the Champions League last season wasn't just his goals he was absolutely brilliant for um, Real and um, you know in terms of being the sort of talisman of the team he's he 's definitely done the hard yards at, at Real Madrid uh, as well you know when Cristiano Ronaldo was the kind of main goal scorer there, he had to sacrifice himself for the team and he did that and he, he in recent years he 's been able to um, sort of flourish as as the main striker um incredible you know it's not easy to last that long at Real Madrid when he went there he was still living with his mum and dad um, right. you know that's um, how sort of young he was and the Leon president and they were the ones um, that, that sold Benzema they sort of Felt a lot of pride um, in sort of developing Benzema mm. as well. All or, Olaf was in tears um, at Benzema picking up his award. Obviously, he had some issues off the pitch, um, but he's back in the, the French national team. Um, him and Mbappe could strike up a, you know, a, a brilliant partnership for, for the World Cup. And he, he said there that you know, it, the World Cup wasn't on the, the list there of the three things he wanted to do. Um, he missed out, of course, previously when, when France won the World Cup. I thought he played okay at the European Championship. Him and Mbappe maybe got a little bit of work to do to Kind of put their individual brilliance together to make up for a, a, a brilliant partnership, but there's no doubt that they've both got the talent, I think, to make that happen um, for France. And, and if they do, may, may, maybe there is a World Cup as, as well to come in the same year, which would be uh, just absolutely incredible. <laughs> you
0: don't want to be retiring then after that, like he's mm. totally <laughs> peaked and hit every single uh, milestone. And then Alexia Putellas retained the women's prize, and it wasn't without controversy either, Mark.
2: Well no um obviously um you know she, she suffered um you know the, the knee injury that kept her out um of the Euros and I think that you know, that was a big um tournament um as well mm-hmm. you know Barcelona were um, absolutely rampant domestically but didn't win uh, the Champions League either so I uh, I mean I, I wouldn't be close enough to the women's game to say um you know it definitely shouldn't have been her or it it should have been somebody else but I think that there is always talk um, surrounding this, when the player that wins it, you know, isn't somebody that ends up winning the big competitions. And uh, my personal opinion on sort of the Ballon d'Or is that um, it's a massively overrated accolade you know football is a, a team game and it, it is about the team rather than the individual and the individual can only shine bright it's when the you know the, the, the team is functioning well around them but there, there is and, and does seem to be this obsession and particularly on the continent I would say and in South America over Ballon d'Or so whoever wins that there is usually controversy although I think it's it shows to sort of go how far Benzema was clear of the pack I don't mean there was anybody complaining about the men's winner probably for the first time in a long time
0: Yeah it does feel like that um, Stephen I'm a judge for the women's Ballon d'Or mm. and I went with Mead I just thought that the Euros were just the crown for her this year Pichala's obviously missed out but I can see both sides of the argument and I did spend an awful lot of time agonising over who should be one and who who should be two and I just felt the Euros are such a big competition and she went and played such a big role in winning it for her country Um, just listening to Mark there and the individual accolades in the GAA here we have the All-Stars and Mm. when they come around they create so much debate and people really want to win them even though it's a a team sport the All-Stars and the players of the year they mean a lot
4: yeah, it is. It's because it's recognition for what you've done on an individual basis to the success of your team, isn't it? And mm-hmm. it, it, the team has to be successful. And I think that's you know why we were talking about Mead there. I think the magnitude of the tournament that we, we were working mm. on, it was huge. And I think what that tournament did for women's football, it, it brought all eyes on it, didn't it? So, and Mead was a standout player yeah. in the tournament and she has been for a club. So I kind of feel that that was probably it's touch and go right? who's going to get it but yeah t- you know you want you want to get the stuff for the team you want to win a winning in a group it, there's nothing like winning something as a team or, or being involved in a team that's successful but then to get the individual accolades goes on top of that and you know Benzema was the absolute standard candidate there was no one that was coming close to him la- last year um, and like I said if, if they're going to win the World Cup it'd be just ridiculous it would be just you know hang the boots up and, and walk yeah. off into the <laughs> sunset like what else are you going to do but um, the difference with these players is they're always striving for the next thing which is yeah. what makes it amazing
0: absolutely and i'm glad now we started talking about the world cup because it is just around the corner mark langdon thank you so much for joining us we thank will you. talk to you soon for sure and we're going to take a very quick break but stay with us Game on. On 2FM. Hello, welcome back i am delighted to say that we are going to talk to siobhan doyle about her wonderful book a history of the ga in 100 objects first of all Siobhan, it was a brilliant idea Like to think, especially when you with the GAA and there's so much tradition and there's so many stories and there's so many things uh, within the GAA that we probably haven't seen, haven't heard and yet are so important to it. But coming up with the idea and following through on it is a whole other thing.
3: Yeah, I, I was surprised it hadn't been done before to be honest. Um, I came up with the idea during lockdown and um, did a bit of background research and then once I could get on the road um, I travelled to 32 counties looking for stories um, started in local museums then went to um, county boards GA clubs and individuals through various different networks. Oh, like Fair Play was it
0: do people want to give you their things? Do they want to share it?
3: Always, always. <laughs> it was always met with enthusiasm. Um, sure, Everyone's mad to share a story or, you know, even when I'm telling people about the book, they'll always try and relate it to something that they own or some match that they mm. were at or something that they have at home. So, um, yeah, there's great encouragement from that. Do you know what is great as well is it gives people the opportunity to remember things, to think,
0: to just realize maybe the the value of something that they hadn't
3: thought about it in a while as well like was there anything that people were surprised they even had um, yeah, I think like when we take a step back, we've loads of stuff at home. Like there's loads of things um, in the book that people will have at home, like uh, cool camps, backpacks, um, mm. match programs, um, corner flags that are in every every club in Ireland. Um, there's lots of ordinary everyday things, but I'm using those as a springboard to tell bigger stories and important stories. What's your favourite thing? Uh, <laughs> that changes every day. Um, but... There's 100 of them in the book um, but I collected about 250 stories oh, wow. so it was pretty hard to whittle down. Um, but today's favourite object um, is one of the first GAA helmets um, and that belonged to a male called Mihal Murphy. He hurled with UCC and uh, in the 1960s he suffered a serious head injury himself. Wow. So um, there was no GA helmets at the time so he used a motorcycle helmet with, with padded cushions on the inside and a chin strap and uh, he went on as a substitute in the county final and you can imagine the looks that he was getting and uh, the whispers around the sideline um, when he came on in this <laughs> helmet um, and I suppose the 60s kind of kind of got the ball rolling for helmets even though they yeah. didn't come in um, formally until uh, 2010 but um, on the biggest stage of them all Did they not? Was it 2010? 2010 yeah 1st of January 2010 yeah it's mad nuts to think we went that long without nuts. them Um yeah been compulsory um, but in the 19 sixty seven All Ireland, um, Limerick were playing Tip, uh, or sorry, Kilkenny were playing Tip, and one of the Kilkenny players, Tommy Walsh, suffered um, an injury and he lost an eye, and um, that kind of uh, got people's attention. And from then on, we were seeing helmets a bit more often.
0: Yeah, and thankfully now we're seeing them all the time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Stephen <laughs> Kelly is still with us, uh, Stephen. Anything that spring to mind for you when we're talking about uh, objects that are really important to? Different people and to associations and to games. Anything that you have,
4: I was just saying the before and um, The caps are really special mm. with international football. The actual physical cap, like I was saying, there's a there's a one lady that used to make the caps, um, and there was one time I think she was sick for a little while, and there were there was a real slow production. of oh, wow! So. so um, it's a really handmade thing it's a, it's a beautiful thing to have for you you know to, to look at to share your kids share your family it's just you know to actually get a physical cap you talk about them and you know you have the records but to have something physical there yeah. to put up I think it, it's a great thing to have and you know that that, that would be my kind of artefact I'd say over the years everybody in Ireland this green thing with gold thread going through it it's just this is a lovely piece to have yeah
0: they're just beautiful yeah. I know them to, to see them all right and you've got Brian Cody's cap yeah
3: yeah, <laughs> the one and only Um, that was um one of the objects that I when I was making a list at the start to kind of get the ball rolling that was near the top of the list. Um, it's so simple but so iconic. I mean, if you saw a shadow of a man on a sideline wearing a cap, you go, Well, that's Cody. Yeah. Um, so it was a no-brainer for me. And uh you know, when I was talking to him um he was saying that uh you know his cap is like a helmet to the players that you know he, he wears it all the time and then swaps it for a beanie um during the summer months. So you always know when the summer's coming, um when Cody would swap. <laughs> the beanie for a baseball cap.
0: Oh, it's, it's brilliant. And one thing that I loved about it was that it, it educated me anyway on, on the, the journey of the GA. but I could actually sit down with my kids and go through it and point out things that they might, you know, it's like kind of to us now, like, oh, you used to play videos on the TV, you know, <laughs> like just yeah. to be able to show them how different the,
3: the games were and the way they were played. Yeah, because it's quite a visual book as well. Yeah. Um, there's you know, a hundred objects, so a hundred images and then um, a, a page with their story. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily a book mm-hmm. that you have to read cover to cover. And um, you can flick through it, see what catches your eye and um, see what story you want to read about today and put it down and pick it back up. And, you know, you, you, you won't have missed anything.
0: Yeah, it's you can share it, which is which yeah. is really nice from a book. So was there like one thing that you really
3: wanted to get? Like, was there did you have to go on any big journeys? Um, yeah, I, I did the 32 counties and uh, one thing I really wanted to get was the John 3-7 sign yeah. and that proved a little bit tricky um, but I put a call out on social media and um, found the John 3-7 sign. There, there's actually a few of them um, and uh, one of them ended up in JJ Bowles' pub in uh, in Limerick City. Um, another object um, that I had on my list was Joe Kernan's uh, broken plaque from mm. the 2002 All-Ireland Final and um, you know Armagh were playing Kerry Um, Joe was managing Armagh he had a runners up plaque himself from 1977 and uh, Armagh were down by four points and at half time and he produced the plaque and asked his players do you want an All-Ireland medal or do you want one of these loser runner up plaques I'd (laughs) say loser is his words Um, and it's an object that he was very ashamed of himself Um, you know he wouldn't show it to his kids he tied it away and um, just really powerful that he had the foresight um, Mm. you know to plan this, yeah. to do it yeah. at halftime, no, you know, no matter what um, the the score was at halftime, produced it um, and broke it off the wall, and uh, that broken plaque um, is still here to this day. And now I suppose it's it's something that he's he's okay to share because you know it's kind of well, it's got a new life it, when yeah. it when something goes the way you wanted to go as well. Like
0: that always helps. Um, When it comes to different counties, have we got kind of more of a rich tradition of objects in different counties?
3: Yeah, it was definitely easier for the counties that traditionally um, play both codes. So uh, your Galways, Corks, um, Dublin. um, And some counties are just a little bit better at collecting than others. Um, Sometimes it's to do with um, like local history groups um, were a real big help to me as well. And uh, local museums as well are really important for um, collecting throughout the community.
0: So what's the what's next now? Like when you think of everything that you've collected and it's, it looks beautiful in the book, I'd say people would like to go and see all of the things as well.
3: Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's something that um, you know I I would like to think could go beyond um, the book. So we'll wait and see. Um, but further down the line, I would like to expand it to other sports, um, which would take an <laughs> awful lot of more.
0: Well, you have a more thinking. Yeah, exactly. A footballer yeah. standing beside you
3: there. Yeah, exactly. So I'd love to expand it to other sports, but that will take much longer, and uh, I need a little rest anyway.
0: Yeah, I'd say it was exhausting. <laughs> was
3: it? I was brilliant, but yeah, it was. But um, um, incredibly fulfilling and um you know to contact these people again and for mm-hmm. them to, um t- to say that it's in the book and for them to contact me now saying, Oh, I saw it in the book, we're thrilled, delighted. Um like I remember the first trip that I ever made was to was to uh Turlock Moor in County Galway, Dottie Burke's um club, mm-hmm. and uh there's a man called Seamus Murphy and uh he won six hurling six senior. Um, hurling titles um, with the club and uh, he brought his the day that I visited and he said I just can't believe someone wants to listen to me someone wants to hear my story and of course you want to hear yeah. those stories like it's the ordinariness of it you, you know there's a Seamus Murphy um, in every club and it's just a pure delight to be able to um, to share their story their stories in this way
0: Yeah well it's a wonderful visual book and also all the stories in it as well uh, Siobhan, so fair play so a history of the GAA and 100 objects where can people get it you know good put shots and online <laughs> well thanks so much for coming in that was great and it's definitely well worth checking out and looking forward to the next installments of it as well uh stephen thank you for coming in thanks for and having just me finally you. before we finish up i did ask you why you didn't keep on playing football and going down through the levels like look at you you look like you could uh you could do a job on <laughs> Haaland there
4: uh, um i think injury was one it yeah after my Achilles, so i was kind of getting back to a level and i I think it's weird not not you want not that you want to finish in a high but you, I, I don't think I ever had in my mind that I wanted to just keep playing until I couldn't play anymore I, I was happy to have played at a certain level because it
0: was it was because it was a job
4: Yeah okay. it, it becomes a job but yeah, yeah. It, it's it's you love it and so it's, it's the best job in the world for my, from my for my point of view um, and now what I know I could do was almost the best job when we're talking about football <laughs> but um it's it, it's just one of those things that you you I've reached a certain level, and I didn't want to be. Sometimes you see players, then they drop down, and yeah. they're bitter about the situations, and 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 it just winds down. If you can finish on top and finish on a high, that's great. And for me, it was it was a natural thing because of an injury. It was mm-hmm. kind of it came to it it was more of a natural end, and that was it. But yeah, that, I think that was that was my kind of mindset on it.
0: Yeah, well, some good advice there. We can finish on a high. (laughs) Unfortunately, we don't all get to do that. Uh, Stephen, thank you. And Siobhan, thanks. Uh, Betty De Silva is up next. We'll be back tomorrow looking at all of the big Premier League games.
3: RTE 2FM.